What a doozy of an ending to that text. <laughs> Could you imagine ending a sermon or a, you hear one where someone says, I might have just wasted my time. <laughs> There's a show on Amazon Prime Video right now called Making the Cut. Uh, but that idea of making the cut is probably more well-known when you, when you think about its reference within the wider cultural usage. Think about whether or not you belong on a designated group or a particular team. You find out if you got cut or not um, is uh, probably how it's popularly referenced. And you think about, did I make the list? Am I part of the group? I know of a, pain, a very painful day in my eighth grade year in which I was trying out for a zero-hour jazz band and I ended up getting cut from the jazz band. I know, right? I got cut from jazz band. I walked down the hall wounded, only to find out I'd also been cut from the basketball team. Now my mornings had opened up, and so had my afternoons. <laughs> it's hard to, when you find yourself in that place, to even have a sense that you belong at that point. It takes you to a very low place when that happens. And of course, this idea of belonging, uh, the sense of uh, who belongs to the people of God and how is, is precisely a major theme here throughout Galatians. Uh, and it's one that we're not supposed to miss. And so we spent quite a few weeks talking about this, looking at Paul's letter here and addressing this here in our series. But for these Galatian Christians, we've already heard this, that, uh, and particularly ones who are coming uh, to the faith outside of Judaism, uh, they've received this teaching about circumcision. Uh, amongst other Jewish practices, that this is essential uh, for them to be part of the Jesus community, be part of what God is doing in Christ. You might say here, and I apologize ahead of time for saying this, they were being told to make the cut in order to make the cut. <laughs> I know, right? That's <laughs> Maybe he spent too much time on the sermon this week. <laughs> but Paul goes on to say here that this is not necessary. In fact, not only is it unnecessary, and gets the gospel all wrong. And so he's going to set the record straight for us this week. He's going to say uh, to those who are turning back to the, an earlier enslavement, is the type of terminology he uses here, whether that, that enslavement is to elemental spirits or whether it's beings by very nature who are not God. But what, is, what does Paul have in mind here? So let's take a look here, take a peek what he's saying here, a couple of highlights as we go through here. We've mentioned before that there's a group in the congregation that's reading through a commentary by N.T. Wright. Uh, on the book of Galatians. It's a brand new one. It came out last May, and, and folks are having varying degrees of success as they read through uh, the commentary. It can be uh, rather challenging uh, for many, but if I were to simply summarize uh, right here on one of the points he makes here about what they're really trying to return to or what they're wrestling with, he talks about this idea of elemental spirits, and, and what does that mean? I mean, you hear elemental spirit. What could he possibly be referencing there? Well, the language that's behind that has a couple different uh, focuses or a couple different places that it could be interpreted as according to Wright. One is, is it might be uh, referencing a misshapen worship of created elements that have now been elevated to kind of this, this divine status. Uh, whether those things be luminaries in the sky like sun, moon, and stars, or fashioned idols like wood and stone, things where you just take these created pieces and turn them into uh, something that you might worship. That these are the elemental spirits that might be referenced here. And these practices, of course, we know were common in the ancient world, uh, particularly amongst the nations uh, that stood outside the Jewish people. And even in the first century, 
uh, we see that uh, these, these same Jewish people are now held captive. They're in, they're in a kind of exile because they're being overlorded by these same groups that would hold on to uh, these elemental spirits or hang on to these different uh, worship practices that stood outside of what the people, the Jewish people, had come to understand. We know that that's part of the curses that we read in Deuteronomy. If you look at Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 15 through 18, you'll actually see that this idea of being in exile was part of the curse of unfaithfulness. But the reference imagery doesn't just end there. Wright actually goes on to say that some research has been done, and he credits a, a gentleman named Ernest Clark about this idea of ancient medical literature in which they talk about this same elemental spirits, the same word that's used here, that the human person is actually composed of, of four of these, earth, air, water, and fire. And within that picture, within medicine, Wright will go on to say that the understanding was there was the need to apply something to bring elements that were out of balance or imbalanced to bring them back into balance. And that thing was the namas, or the law. You see where this is going now, right? You apply the law to it in some way, and you do so uh, in a way that it now serves as this agent of instruction or tutoring. It allows the person to come back into balance. And perhaps the agitators here uh, to the Galatian Christians might have drawn on this same cultural backdrop to, to say essentially that the Torah observance is the cure to the human ailment, particularly the sin-sick ailment. Like I said, there may be a lot going on there. We talk about elemental spirits in the backdrop, stuff that lays outside of our culture. And for us to see uh, here that the picture that Paul is addressing here is writing to an audience uh, that is in need of a cure, an audience that's out of sorts, an audience that finds itself sin-sick and enslaved or exiled, that needs to be rescued from the present evil age. And the thing that Paul's going to say here is that rescue is not found in making the cut. Instead, salvation comes in what Paul calls the fullness of time. We'll see that in verses 4 and 5. That in that fullness of time, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as children. This is old uh, uh, kind of initiative game uh, debriefing technique that I was taught many years ago where you'd look at a particular activity and you would, you would break it down into various component parts. And you, you'd work with a group and you'd say uh, the three what's. We would say what, the so what, and the now what. But when you look at this part where Paul says here, we can see the what. That's the gospel narrative. We see that encapsulated here in, in this sentence uh, where Paul talks about the son who's sent, the one who is born human, the one who's born under law, who's Jewish, and we also see the why or the, or the so what here in this part that, the good, that is literally the good news itself. This gospel narrative exists because, these gospel events exist because humanity is in need of redemption and this one comes to redeem. Now we don't use that word all the time. I heard a guy yesterday actually uh, try to describe this and I think it was a little confusing after he got done. <laughs> Let me, let me share it this way. There's an old story. Uh, if you've ever heard of Gordon College outside of Boston, it's a small Christian school. Um, coincidentally, I'm having a conversation with one of their board members tomorrow, so weird intersection there. Uh, but the school was founded in 1889 uh, by Pastor A.J. Gordon, a minister who served the people of Boston for over 25 years at the, this one Baptist church. 
The story goes that as Pastor Gordon was getting ready for uh, services uh, one day, that there was a boy who walked up carrying a rusty cage full of wild birds that he had caught. He had trapped them out in the field, and the birds are all flooding around inside this cage. And of course, Gordon inquires about the birds, to which the boy mentions, yes, indeed, I had trapped them out in the field. And he began to share his plans about what he was going to do with them. He thought he would play with them for a little bit and then maybe feed them to his cat at home. That's not good news for the birds, <laughs> right? That's not good news. Well, Gordon, upon hearing this, uh, offered to buy the cage and the birds from this boy. He said, I'll, I'll, get, I'll, I'll buy those from you. And, um, and he offered him a, a sum of money that the boy thought, eh, that seems a little bit high for these, but I'll take it. And so he took the money that Gordon offered, and off he went, singing, cap, counting his money as he went. And Gordon then walked around the back of the, the church building and released the birds back into the wild, opened the cage and let them go. He, of course, uh, as you hear this story where Gordon purchases these birds and releases them from a cage, you can't help but hearing that they've been rescued to a new life, maybe sent back to their old life. But they're free now. They've experienced freedom. That's redemption. There's a sermon illustration, of course, in that, and the story goes on that Gordon showed up at church the following week with the cage and proceeded to use that as an illustration. But the story there that we have there, this idea of redemption, of purchasing and freeing, bringing rescue, is, is not a new story. It's an old story. It actually draws, in this text, it draws on an even older story for the observant Jew. It's a story of Exodus, a story of the link that God would go to rescue a people, to claim them as God's own. You'll recall that Marty last week highlighted in his sermon, if he had a chance to hear that sermon, he highlighted the very beginning of the Ten Commandments of the Decalogue. It comes out right from the very beginning. It doesn't come out with, don't do this or do this. It comes out with a very uh, big statement. Exodus 20, Deuteronomy chapter 5. I am the Lord your God. That's claim. Your God. You've been claimed. Who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. That's rescue. So we see that picture of the God who claims us and rescues uh, a people of his own. And so we see that here in Galatians as well. We see a people who are in need of rescue, who have been rescued, but are now being pulled back to an old kind of life. They're, they're going back. Maybe they got a little nostalgic. Probably in the New Testament they got a little bit afraid. They get uh, the idea twisted in their head, someone comes and convinces them, and they go back to what they're comfortable with or what sounds right. And here it's the elemental spirits in verse 3, or for the uninitiated who are enslaved to beings who by their very nature are not God in verse 8. And so a new exodus is needed, but not an exodus like the old of the Jewish people, but an exodus of all people, of all nations, to rescue us all from the present evil age and to usher us into a promised age to come. And so God achieves that in the sending of his son, Jesus Christ. And of course, that's a beautiful picture. The idea of being redeemed, the idea of being rescued and saved. What a beautiful picture. But that's only half the story. That's only half the story of what God has in mind for us. If we stop there, that's beautiful. We're the birds. We got out of a cage. We flew off. I have a, couple, a few nieces and, and at least one nephew who've been adopted uh, by my siblings. And I remember as attending one of the adoption proceedings where the judge noted that that particular child had won the lottery. They had won the lottery, the family lottery. Here was this uh, child who was once orphaned, is now embraced and enfolded into a loving family. And so this judge saw that as this child had won the lottery. I think if you ask my, 
uh, brother and sister-in-law, they'd tell you they had won the lottery um, by welcoming this child into their home. Our adoption, in verse 7, as God's children completes the other half of what God is up to. This adoption that we become part of God's family, that we are God's children, and then Paul will conclude here, if indeed we are children, then we are also heirs. And heirs of what? The promise that was made to Abraham. We've heard that throughout the text. That's not new. We heard that at last week's text at the very beginning or very end. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. That's pretty extraordinary. That's a message of belonging, that we are beloved, claimed as God's own, that you have been claimed, and that you're a beneficiary of what God has promised. These are the big things of the gospel. This is what God has been up to and what God is up to. But this claim is even bigger than we imagine. It's even better and more significant than we often appreciate. Look at what verse 6 says in the text. Note what it, what it says there about our condition as children. This is huge. Because you are children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Yesterday afternoon, I, I spent uh, time at a, I was part of a memorial service attending that uh, for a former student of mine, a uh, youth group student. And of course, the gathering there uh, for any type of thing where someone dies and, and dies at a, a rather young age, uh, you know, early 30s, uh, to, to die and leave behind two young kids, it's very sad. A lot of the message in the memorial service was around this idea of God's redemption, that God has rescued us and provided us salvation. But I went from that place and wondered, is there more to it, having read Galatians all week? And that certainly there is more. When I was a marching band growing up, there was a sense of if you were marching, you'd be marching along, moving from point A to point B. But if you were marching in place, they called it marking time. And I wonder how many times we get the idea that the Christian faith is a marking of time, that we're just waiting. We're waiting for something in the afterlife to come. And a passage like this reminds us that God has given us something here in this present time so that we're not just simply marking time. What's that something? It's that God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. A couple of years ago, the Gospel Coalition referred to this aspect of the Christian life, this indwelling of the divine, as Christianity's best-kept secret. <laughs> this idea that we've been filled and that we've been equipped and empowered with the presence of God. And I don't know if it's the best-kept secret, certainly as I speak now here in this space and as it goes out on YouTube, but to know this, it's certainly something that is bigger than I oftentimes appreciate. And it's this thing that follows the pattern that God has been up to from very early on. You remember the first Exodus, how God's presence was with the people of God in that tabernacle, later on the temple, that God dwelled with his people, not just rescuing them from a foreign land and a foreign nation, but drawing them together as a people of God's own and God's own presence there to guide them. And here in this text, we see that that same confirming marker is found in the outpouring of a prayer, this Abba Father prayer. And we should be surprised to see that being the prayer, that Christ's spirit fills us, because it's the same prayer that Mark 14 notes Jesus prayed. And it's also the same prayer that Paul identifies in Romans chapter 8 as one that serves as confirmation of our reception and adoption. So I guess the question I have this morning is, who would reject all of this? 
this such a great offer? Why would you go back? If that was the gospel that was presented to you, what are you going back to if that's what you have in the present and what you can look forward to? Well, I suppose we could look to the younger brother in Luke's gospel in Luke 15, the story about the prodigal. You remember him, right? The prodigal? There's been some great paintings. Rembrandt did a great painting of the prodigal, the return of the prodigal. Henry Nouwen, the great spiritual writer, uh, wrote about it. Um, but do you remember the younger brother, what he imagined his life would be coming back to the father's household? Remember how he rationalized what would happen if he returned? He was just going to ask his father to let him be one of the hired hands. He wasn't looking uh, to return to full status or anything. He didn't think that was even available to him. But here's the thing. His plan was smaller than God's own plan. His father had bigger visions for him, something bigger in mind, something greater than even the son could imagine, that he would be received back as a child, as an heir, that he would be clothed as such, as the party would ensue, that would be symbolic and representative of the return of a child. You know what? God has something different in mind for all of us. Paul is afraid that these Galatian Christians here have missed this. They're missing out on this peace, this crucial peace that God is there with them, that God has filled them, that God has called them and claimed them. And so his efforts with this group, he kind of feels like they've been wasted. Verse 11. They missed all that, that beautiful, beautiful picture. And even worse, they're returning back to what previously held them captive in an exile. They're putting their chains back on. They're now cutting themselves out of what God is doing. And I wonder here in conclusion if we might be doing the same at some places in our life. There might be some of us who've tried to return back to an old way of living. We see uh, in the midst of difficulties within culture, people abandoning ship, moving away from faith, moving away from places where God's promises live in their hearts and lives, denying the power of the Spirit amongst them in their communities. Perhaps we ourselves might be inclined as well to do the very same. Well, if that's the case, let me remind us of two things. The first one is this. God is for us. The message of the gospel is that God loves you, that God is for you, that God would go to the extent of sending God's own son to come and to pay the price that you and I might enjoy a life, enjoy a life of not as an orphaned and abandoned, but actual heir, a child of God. And not only is God for us, that God is with us. And Jesus will say as much in Matthew 28, the very end of Matthew's gospel, I'm with you to the end of the age. That God's presence goes with us and continues with us. And so where does that leave us? One of my favorite passages in the scriptures is Hebrews 11. Walks through a series of people, those who live by faith. Lists those whose eyes were looking to a distant country, looking towards one who in Hebrews 12 we find out, Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. And they're, they're moving towards that place, these, these ancients of old, these great ones. And I, I could just imagine that as that letter is being written to the audience, that they're thinking about leaving. They're thinking about going back to an old way of living. And before we get to the great faith chapter, the final verse of Hebrews chapter 10. But we are not among those who shrink back and so are lost, but amongst those who have faith and so are saved. May we be a people that enter into that life of faith and continue to live in that life of faith, knowing that we live before 
the one who has demonstrated perfect faithfulness in our lives all the days of our lives. May it be so.